Amen. Well, it is great to be with you this morning and uh, today and to be able to share and open God's Word. And we're very excited about having Beverly come and join us as our new children's pastor. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. It's going to be our last weekend looking at this passage. And as you look there, I have a question for you. When you are squeezed, when life gets tough and challenging, when you feel the pressure from both sides, what comes out of you? What gets squeezed out? Is it anger? Is it frustration? Is it something destructive? Or does what gets squeezed out is God's word and the power of the truths of it? And this is as Paul ends this section on in the arena in living the spiritual battles. This is what he wants us to understand, that in the midst of being squeezed, we can either have something frustrating and, dis and uh, destructive come out of us, or we can have the power of God. And so we've been spending the last number of weeks in Ephesians 6. Paul pulls back the curtain of life, so to speak, and reminds us that even though we're in a physical world, there is a spiritual world, that we have an enemy who wants to take us out, who wants to destroy the name of Jesus, who wants to weaken the church, who wants people not to know about the power of Christ. But the good news is that in our salvation, God has given us tools, implements, uh, armor, so to speak, to help us stand firm when life's struggles and battles come. And Paul's talked about five pieces of armor that we have. These are the wonders of our salvation that we have the belt of truth. We've got the truth of what God says about us. That we have a breastplate of righteousness that we stand uncondemned now before the Father. That we have shoes of the good news and the gospel of peace. We have peace with God and the peace of God. That we've got a shield of faith no matter what fiery dart is sent our way. That we have a helmet of salvation. That our new identity in Christ has helped us. And today we want to look at the last piece of armor. Paul says, you've got the spirit sword. You've got the word of truth and to understand the power of God's word. And that when we wield the sword, what we are really doing is that wherever Satan puts a question mark, God says, put a period. That God puts periods, statements, truths in the scriptures what Satan's tactic is, is to try to get us to think those are questions, to get us concerned about them. Is that really true? And that when we wield the sword of the Spirit, we're saying, no, 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 there's no question marks. What God says is true, period. So here in Ephesians chapter 6, let's just sit again in this passage. In verse 10, it says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
And in all circumstances, take up a shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication. And so the last piece of armor here that Paul says is as offensive as it is defensive. He says it's the sword of the Spirit. And a Roman soldier would go into battle really with several different weapons. They would have a couple spears that were wood handles but metal tips to them that they would use to try to kill the enemy. And they would have two swords. One was the gladius, that's the longer sword, a sword that they would use not only defensively but offensively, that they would point it to where they're going in battle. They would march forward. They're saying, we're going to be able to take this ground. We're going to take back what the enemy has taken from us. And then they have a smaller sword, the pugio. And the smaller sword was more like a dagger, and it was used for very close hand-to-hand combat. And you know, as Paul talks here about the evil days, the darkness of days, when the, when the battle seems very close, that we've got a sword that leads us into battle, and we've got a dagger that's there in the midst of hand-to-hand, in the darkness, in the midst of the difficult combat. And so Paul says, you've got the sword of the Spirit, to defend you and to move forward. And so Paul describes this as the Spirit's sword. He says, this is the Holy Spirit's sword. And he connects here the Spirit of God with the Word of God. And that he connects that God's Word comes to us through the Spirit. It's what Paul writes about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Paul says this, that all Scripture, God's Word, is breathed out by God. The word there for breath is uh, the same word as the Holy Spirit. It is God-breathed. It's Spirit-produced. It's Spirit-empowered. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And Paul here, he connects the spirit of God with the word of God. And he says, every scripture that you read, it comes from the mouth of God, the breath of God, that it's spirit empowered. It's not just words on a page, but this is what the Holy Spirit has given us. And sometimes what happens, particularly in churches, is that we become either spirit churches or we become word churches, right? That everything's about the spirit of God. We're just going to flow with the spirit. We're just going to do whatever the spirit says. And it doesn't really matter what the word says. It's what the spirit says. Or some places are kind of word churches. And it's all about the words in the scripture. What does God's word say? What's the truth say? And certainly it's the truth of God. But the truth of God needs to be energized by the spirit of God. And Paul says the spirit's weapon The weapon that the Holy Spirit gives to you and I is his word. Every word that spirit and power that comes from God's mouth. And we see all throughout scripture the power of God's word. In fact, the very end of Revelation, we get a picture of Jesus who's coming back from heaven. And how is he coming? It says he has a sword in his mouth. That what he speaks is powerful. 
The writer of scripture says that the word of God, the scripture, it's like a two-edged sword or dagger that parts between bone and marrow. It like works in our life to really dig deep, cut us where it needs to. Now, the problem is in our culture, we don't have that view of God's word, right? We don't think of it as very powerful. We think, oh, it's kind of dusty words. It's ancient history. Maybe there's some good philosophy. Maybe there's a couple verses. Maybe there's something that's there. Paul says this is not just God's word. It's the Spirit's sword. It's powerful. And Paul here uses an unusual word to talk about the word of God. In Greek, there are at least three words that talk about writing. The first is graphe. And graphe is the letters on the page. We get calligraphy, right, which is nice letters, how it looks, kind of fancy lettering. The graphe is just words on a page. It's not the word that Paul uses. Another word is the word logos. And logos is not the words on a page. It's not the letters. It's the meaning that's there. In fact, Scripture talks about Jesus as the word of God, the expression of God. But that's not the word that Paul uses. He uses here that the sword of the Spirit is the rhema word of God. The Greek word is rhema. It's kind of spirit-empowered. It's words that jump off a page. It's words that cut deep. And I don't know if you've ever, like, heard a scripture. Maybe you read something from the Bible, and it just jumped out at you. It really just cut you. That, that maybe you go, oh, that's powerful. I got to claim that. Maybe you heard a, a scripture in a phrase of a song and you're like, that's just so true. That it's not just the words on the page. It's not only the meaning. It's the spirit-empowered meaning. And when Paul here talks about the rhema word of God, he's talking about the word of God that's applied to particular situations that we need. And we look at the armor, and you may say, well, wait a minute, Terry, like, hasn't God given us truth? Like, maybe it seems kind of redundant, all of these pieces of armor. The first piece of armor is the belt of truth. The belt of truth is the truth of who God is, the truth of who we are. It's the truth that we have as Christians. The sword of the Spirit is when we use that truth in battle. It's when we have a particular situation, a separate struggle, and we say, here's God's word. This is what God's word says for that moment. And Paul here reminds us of the power of God's word. It's not just letters on a page. It's more than meaning. It's spiritual power. In fact, how were we created? It said what in Genesis 1 2, God spoke. The word of God, as the spirit hovered over, created. Our words are powerful. And to help us understand that, I, I think we see Jesus using the word of God as kind of the spirit's sword. So if you have your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 3, you can see it on the screen 
behind me. And this is the very first moment we see Jesus as an adult. It's what we see Jesus as the very beginning of his ministry. And what the Holy Spirit wants us to know as the gospel writers recorded his life is this is how his ministry started. And in chapter three, it starts with his baptism. We see this beginning at verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, hey, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, but you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, hmm, if you really are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here we have two events in Jesus' life that are so intertwined. Sometimes we look at them separately, but we have to understand them together. Very first thing we see is Jesus has kind of gathered some people and he goes to the Jordan River where John, his cousin, is baptizing for the repentance of sins. And there's kind of this sense of when you're baptized, you're saying, hey, my old life is gone. I want to become new. And as John was doing this, Jesus said to John, hey, baptize me. And John's like, wait a minute. You're the son of God. I know who you are. You don't need to repent of anything. You've not sinned. Why would I baptize you? You should baptize me. And Jesus said, no, baptize me. Why? Because he's our substitute. He's not just a role model. He's our substitute. And he came to give his life on the cross for us so that we might have new life. He says, you baptize me. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open, we're told, the dove descends, and they hear God's voice, and God says this to Jesus. It says, you are my son whom I loved and with whom I'm well pleased. And we looked at this a little bit last week. In that moment, God does three things. God gives Jesus his identity. You're my child. You're my son. This is what we all long for. We live in a culture where people are desperately trying to figure out who they are. What's my identity? And friends, we're a child of God. We're going to look for the next few weeks at what it is to be made in the image of God, that we are men and women who reflect the image of God. So Jesus, God says, you have an identity. You have security whom I love, my beloved son. Like you're secure in love. Right? And we want to find something. What makes us secure? We long to be secure in someone else's love. We find ultimate security in God's love. And then he says, with whom I'm well pleased, that's our significance. You matter. Right? And we want to know more than just being loved. It, do I matter? Do I make a difference? And God says, Jesus, you're my son. You have security because I love you. And you have significance because I'm well pleased. 
And then it says right after that, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so the opening days of Jesus' ministry, what does he experience? He's in the arena. Right? The sky is opened, right? And we see the goodness of heaven, everything good and glorious and wonderful. It comes from God. And then what Jesus is taken to the wilderness and that we pull back the curtain and we see the spiritual battle that Jesus is in. And he goes from the voice of God, right, to the voice of the enemy. He goes from the fullness of the river to the emptiness of the wilderness. He goes from being with his disciple and being with people from community to being alone. And God took him to the wilderness. He goes with just two things. He goes with the spirit of God and the word of God, the two connected the spirit soared, and it was all he needed. The book of Hosea talks about the times God takes us to the wilderness, to the desert. It says in Hosea, I took you to the wilderness, referring to the times that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. I took you there to woo you. I took you there so that everything else would be stripped away, so you would know that you're my child. You're fully loved. You matter. And after 40 days, 40 days of fasting, Jesus what is confronted with the enemy. And what's the enemy's first temptation? What does he say? He says, if you really are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And what's the temptation? What's Satan saying? He's really tempting Jesus and said, do you really believe who you are? Do you believe your identity? Do you believe what God said is true? Because God had just said what? 40 days before, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. And Jesus, or Satan goes, hmm, if you really are the son of God, you wouldn't be treated like this. If you really are the son of God, you'd have all the riches of heaven. You wouldn't be starving. Is this any way for the son of God to be living? Can you really be the son of God? And what does Satan do? He begins to put a question mark where God had put a period. Are you really the son of God? And isn't this what Satan does today in our culture? Particularly with our identity. Are you really who you are? Are you really who you created you are? Who am I? What can I be? What's my identity? And the Spirit said to Jesus, you're my son. That's your identity. You see, this is what Satan did in the original temptation to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? They were there in the garden. God would meet with them. They were formed and made in his image. They had everything. And what did Satan say? Well, if you eat of this fruit... Your eyes will be open to become more like God. Wait a minute, I thought we were made in the image of God. Oh, are you really? Because maybe it'll be more like God. And wherever God puts a period, Satan always comes along and puts a question mark. Is that really true? Is that really right? So what did Jesus say? Jesus goes back to the book of Deuteronomy to a time when Israel was in the wilderness and God was giving them manna and, and he says, wait a minute, Satan, man doesn't live by bread alone, but he lives by what? Every word of God, P. 
period. What was the word of God? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it goes back to Deuteronomy 8, where it says in verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Period. See, where is God put a period in his word, and Satan is making you question it. Ah, is that true? Am I really forgiven? Am I really loved by God? Am I really made new? Have I really been given everything that I need? Am I really part of a community? See, this is what Satan does. Where have you placed a question mark where God puts a period? And then Satan goes, oh, so we're going to play the scripture game. We're going to play who knows scripture better. So notice what Satan does. Jesus answered, right, with the word of God. So what does Satan do? Okay, let me tempt you with the word of God. In verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. Because it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands, and you won't even strike your foot against a stone. And so somehow Satan and Jesus, they're transported to the temple in Jerusalem. They're on one of the tie pillars of the temple, which is about 35, 40 feet high, that's on the valley. There's a valley kind of straight down below, and, and between the top of the pillar and the bottom of the valley, it's about 400 to 450 feet and so Satan says, hey, if you're the son of God, you know, God loves you, God cares for you, God won't harm you. If you really are the son of God, you know you have a loving father then. Why don't you just jump and he'll catch you? And I look at this temptation, I think that's just the dumbest thing. Like what's tempting about that? What's tempting about jumping off and letting someone catch you? It's like some grand game, you know, that kids sometimes play with their parents. You know, they jump off something and catch me, mom, catch me, dad, catch me. At least in the first temptation, Jesus was going to get some bread. And the last temptation, he's going to get some riches. But what's here? And what's so tempting about this? It's the fact of two things. Jesus, Satan is kind of putting two scriptures together. In Malachi 3, verse 1, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And so at the very end of the Old Testament, it's the book of Malachi, there's this promise that when the Messiah, the Christ, comes, he's going to show up in Jerusalem, and suddenly everybody's going to know who he is. Oh, we know this is Jesus. So what does Satan do? Satan's like, okay, Jesus, here's a couple truths. you got to show up in Jerusalem. Everybody's going to know who you are. So how be you just jump off here. Angels will come. People will go, wow, did you see the angels catch Jesus? There must be something about him. They're going to know you're the Messiah, the Christ. And here is Jesus saying, wait a minute, I'm going to short circuit what God has, and Satan is saying, why don't you just put God to the test? Why don't you just try to get God to do what he says he does? 
Why don't you try to see, is God really who he says he is? Is God love you? Is God's word true? Are you really going to show up in Jerusalem and, and people know who you are? Because in fact, a few weeks later, he shows up in Jerusalem for the Passover. He overturns the money tables. And what happens? They want to kill him. They don't want to say, oh, it's the Messiah. They want to kill him. Is just going to do things the easy way or the hard way? Is Jesus going to use his power for himself or for us? And so what's the temptation? The temptation is to put question marks about who God is and what his word says. Is God really loving? Is God really caring? Is God really protecting? Why don't you just test that out? Try it. And don't we do the same thing? Right? I, I don't know. Does God really love me? I don't feel loved. I look at my situation. I don't think when I look at my circumstances and situation, it looks like God really loves me. And Satan begins to put a question mark. and said, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, oh, I don't know if he really loves me. Or sometimes it's the other, that, that God has anger, righteousness. The wrath of God. Oh, God can't be like that. God just loves everybody. Everything's okay. It doesn't really matter. Nothing's really going to make God angry. You can really do what you want. We begin to put question marks. I don't know. I don't know if I, my God wouldn't be a God of wrath. I don't know if my God can forgive this. I don't know if God cares about that. I'm sure God turns a blind eye to this, but he'll look to that. And what does Satan try to do? Satan tries to get us to put question marks, not just about our identity, but question marks about God. Right? And don't we live in a culture? Oh, that's put lots of question marks. God can't be like that. And what does Jesus do? He goes back to Deuteronomy, to a time when Israel was in the wilderness, to a time, the same time when they were angry and frustrated because they weren't getting what they wanted and they wanted to demand God do something for them. And Moses says, what? You can't put God to the test. And Jesus uses that. He says, it's written, Satan. And do you notice the power? Right? Satan doesn't keep arguing. Satan stops. And then finally, because he knows he got Eve to be tempted, he got Jonah to turn a different way, he got David to mess with um, Bathsheba, he tries a third time. And in verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the splendor. All this I give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So instead of being at the temple, somehow Satan and Jesus, they're transported to a high place in the world where they can see a lot of the known world. And Satan goes, hey, Jesus, you can have all this. You can control all this. You can enjoy all these riches. You just have to, like, bow down and worship me. You're going to get all this. Just let people know I'm important. Don't worship your father. Worship me. Because I can give you this. Because he was the prince of the power of the air. God allowed him that. 
And so what really is at stake in this? It's you and I. Because Jesus left what? All the riches and authority in heaven. And he left it all to come to us to suffer and die. Why? So that he would be the Lord. He'd have all those riches back. See, the temptation here wasn't, oh, is Jesus going to have nothing or is he going to have all the riches? The temptation was how he was going to get them. Because God had promised him, though. Satan says, you can just worship me. You can take the easy way instead of doing it your father's way and suffering and dying and giving your life and being separated by the father and all that. You can just have it the easy way. What's the temptation? Is, am I going to believe what God's word says is the best for me? Is God's way the best? Because the temptation for Jesus is do I take the easy way or the Father's way? And Satan tries to plant a question mark on the Father's way. Do you know how hard that's going to be, how difficult that's going to be, how painful it is? Why don't you just short-circuit it? You'll have the same end, but a different way. And isn't that what we do? We look at God's Word and we read God's Word, and often what happens is, Satan begins to put question marks. God says, bless your enemies, forgive them. Oh, really? Well, maybe some, maybe the easy ones. But I don't know about them. God's word says, even if you hide anger in your heart, it's like you killed someone. Well, no, 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 God didn't say, well, it's not like that. I can kind of just be a little bit angry here. God's word says, hey, everything that we give to God, the first part belongs back to him. Why don't we honor God with our resources? Well, but you don't know how tough it is. You don't know finances. You don't know that. Satan loves to put question marks. And here Satan puts a question mark for Jesus. Take the easy way. You don't have to do it God's way. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, I'm putting a period. The Bible says, the scripture says, it goes back to Deuteronomy again, and God's word says, worship God alone. He's the only one you worship. And so Jesus here, remember, he's, he's God. Everything else we have in the, in the New Testament, it's like it's his word. You know, it used to have red letter editions, everything that was him. Whatever he spoke, it really became the word of God. Jesus here, notice, he could have come up with something new for the enemy. He could have had his own rationale for not giving in the temptation. But what did he do? He always went back to Deuteronomy. He went back to the word of God. He always said the word of God is this, because he took the sword of the spirit and he wielded it against the enemy, I think, to show us what it is for us to do the same, to show the enemy the truth. How do we wield the sword of the Spirit? In those tempting situations, we take God's word and we say, this is what God says, period, no question mark. So what's it mean we should do? How do we get ready, practice? First of all, we read and we memorize God's word. David writes in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've hidden your word. 
We know it. Memorize it. Keep it. You're in a challenge. You're facing a battle. You go to God's word and find out, what does God say about this battle, this struggle? What's a verse that will help me with that? What's the rhema word of God that I can use in the midst of the battle to find firm and solid ground? And I can guarantee you almost every situation we have, there's a verse there for us, something God says for us. And it's why we learn it, we read it, internalize it, meditate on it, know it. Next month, we're going to have a few classes just to kind of expand our knowledge in some areas and some of the areas of discipline on, uh, on prayer and finances. And we're going to have, there's a class just how to really get the most out of God's word, how to read it well and use it as a spirit sword. Secondly, we pray God's word. Right, that we pray it. What we use for the, to nurture our prayer and give power to our prayer is pray the word of God. What's it say? And Daniel does this. Read Daniel chapter 9 and 10. Daniel's in a predicament. He knows what God's word says. And he says, God, this is what you promised. So it's about to come true. I'm claiming this promise. This is what you said. I'm going to claim God's word. And what energizes our prayers and when the power of the Spirit is when we pray God's word and say, God, this is what you say. This is what you promise. Would you help it come true? I'm going to risk my life. This is what it says, period. Now, sometimes people say, oh, wait a minute. Does that mean like you can pray for anything and that you're going to get rich or healthy or wealthy or all those things that we can pray for what God calls us to pray for, but we have to pray it for ourselves." And there's a situation in, in Acts 23, Paul, is, it's kind of a powerful situation where the word of God, he, he really internalizes it, right? Because sometimes we think, oh, we're just going to use prayer to get what we want. Prayer is a way to really change us. And in Acts 23, Paul has been preaching the gospel. He's angered a lot of people. He's before the high priest, Ananias. And in verse 1 of 23, Ananias says, hey, Paul, stop. Someone smack his mouth. Literally said, would you hit him to kind of shut him up? And Paul gets really angry at this. And I love this because this is Paul being humid. And instead of going, oh, okay, yes, sir, I'm going to do that. Paul says in verse 2, he says, Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck? And it's kind of a moment, you know, where Paul's inside voice comes out. Has that ever happened? Like something comes out and you're like, oh. Right where you're squeezed, pressed. What comes out? Frustration, anger. Some people say, hey, Paul, wait a minute. You can't say that. Like Anna said, this is the high priest. Like you got to be careful what you say. And no, Paul doesn't say, oh, no, it doesn't matter. I'm going to say what I want. Look at who he is. He's far off. In verse 5, Paul said, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Paul apologized. Because the word of God spoke to him. In the midst of the battle, when he was hard-pressed, when frustration and anger could have come out, instead, when he saw the situation, God's word came out. And would we pray, like in the midst of the challenges of life, that God's word would come out? And then thirdly, we proclaim God's word. 
We proclaim it. We declare it. We speak about it. There's something powerful. Here Jesus voiced God's word. I think part of the power of the rhema word of God is that we speak it out. Proverbs says life and death is in the power of the tongue. And, and friend, over some hard times in my life, particularly in midst of some of the battles that I face, I found there's some declarations, there's some things that God's word says that are true, some things that we declare uh, that are all scriptural. Uh, I declare that God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. That's what uh, Timothy said. God's not given us a spirit of fear. If you want to pray something over your kids every morning before they go to school, you tell them God's not giving you a spirit of fear, but he's giving you a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. And Romans 8 says, I declare I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. We're more than a conqueror in him. I declare that God's goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Isn't that what David says in Psalm 23? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'm going to declare God with goodness and mercy. Pray that over your children, your grandchildren. God, would goodness and mercy come. I declare that God will meet every one of my needs according to his riches and glory. That's the promise. God, I don't feel like you're meeting them. God, I feel like I'm struggling here. But God, you promise, God, I'm going to declare you will meet every one of my needs. I declare that I live by faith and not by sight. I declare that greater is the one who is in me than the one who is in the world. And friends, the word of God, it's defensive when temptation comes. It's offensive. It goes before it. It declares what God planned and purposed for us. So let me ask, what has God said for a period in your life that you put a question mark? What are the truths about your identity and salvation, about who God is? The truths about God's ways for us that the enemy has been working overtime, and that squiggly little snake has turned a period into a question mark. Would you declare God's word, period, as the spirit soared? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his role model of what he's given to us. Jesus, speak to us. Father, we thank you for this armor that you've given us. And thank you for your word. Would we not see it as weak and anemic, just words on a page, but the rhema, powerful word of God that helps us to battle in each and every situation. And Father, we pray that those places where we struggle with what you said, what your word says, where the enemy is putting question marks, would we stand firm and say, it's with a period. I am who you say I am. You are who you say you are. And your ways are higher and righteous. I invite us to stand as we sing this song. Jesus went into the wilderness with the word of God and with the spirit of God. Paul ends this section with praying in the spirit. Let's stand and invite the power of the spirit to be with us in each and every battle. Let's worship together.